From the studio of KPSU Portland and in association with the Department of History at Portland State University, this is Beyond Footnotes. Join us as we explore public, local, and world history through discussions with professors, authors, fellow students, and alumni. Thank you for joining us. This is Beyond Footnotes. I'm Lindsay Smith. I'm so excited to be back in the studio. This quarter, I am working with Evan Smiley and Jeffrey Stone to bring you guys some awesome episodes. I sincerely hope you enjoy. Please check back to see when we will be releasing new episodes. As always, social media is the best place to stay up to date and to be heard. Please feel free to contact me on Facebook or Twitter with any comments, questions, or suggestions concerning the podcast. For previous episodes and extended content, check out soundcloud.com slash beyondfootnotes or kpsu.org. As American society attaches more and more to digital media, brick-and-mortar cultural institutions such as museums find it ever more challenging to engage with their local communities or bring new visitors through the door. Also, in many places, the air of catering to elite members of society still settles around some cultural institutions. Oftentimes, these places share architectural design elements with universities or government buildings. To some members of the community, these buildings appear imposing and unapproachable. Cultural institutions are painfully aware of the general lack of diversity amongst visitors. However, it's important to acknowledge that places such as museums are staffed by passionate people who often want to share knowledge as much as preserve physical artifacts. These people search for ways to communicate and engage with community members that allow diverse histories to be told in creative and innovative ways that allow for individual and community growth. Gone are the days of the museum as a temple where interpretation and authority were only open to one or a handful of professionals. As historian Catherine Lewis argues, by the end of the last century, the era of collaboration had begun. Professionals from different backgrounds and community members become more involved in museum exhibitions, policies, projects, and programs. Author Nina Simon defines a participatory cultural institution as a place where visitors can create, share, and connect with each other around content. There are many ways to engage with local communities through visitor participation and community collaboration projects and programs using digital media and face-to-face interaction. The ultimate goals are to make the institution as relevant, useful, and accessible as possible, to allow visitors to construct their own meaning from cultural experiences, and to allow users' voices to inform and invigorate projects and programs. Today's institutions, such as the Oregon Historical Society, are actively engaging with their local communities through professionals like my guest. In this episode of Beyond Footnotes, I interview Eliza Canty-Jones. Eliza is the Director of Community Engagement at the Oregon Historical Society and editor of the Oregon Historical Quarterly. She received her master's degree from Portland State University in 2005 with a focus on public history and the Pacific Northwest. Her skills are remarkably far-ranging and include community outreach and engagement, research, public speaking, event planning, editing and publishing, writing, staff development and management, project development, fundraising, fiscal planning and management, and much more. I am so pleased to have her as my guest. Welcome, Eliza. Thank you for joining me today. Thanks, Lindsay. It's great to be here. Let's begin with some more information about you, Eliza. Please tell me a little bit about yourself, where are you from originally, and what brought you to Portland State as a graduate student. Please share a little bit about your education experience at PSU and your career after graduation. 
You bet. It'd be my pleasure. So I grew up on the eastern shore of Maryland, which is a rural place on to the east of the Chesapeake Bay in Maryland. And I did my undergraduate work at a place called St. Mary's College, which is actually a public liberal arts college. It's co-ed, not at all Catholic, in southern Maryland. And I, while I was there, I was an English major, and I took a class called cultural journalism that a fabulous professor, Andrea Hammer, there had created. And she had begun creating the uh, Southern Maryland Documentary Project, and she was documenting folks from Southern Maryland through oral histories. And my junior year in college, I got to do oral histories with a guy named Vernon who had worked on the water uh, back there on the East Coast. We call him watermen, folks who work the water. And he had been a waterman all his life in a lot of different ways. And it was really a powerful experience to be able to interview him. And my friends and I, the following year, did a year-long project where we founded a journal called Slackwater uh, that has to do with the documentation of Southern Maryland folks. And we pulled on the interviews that we had created and a lot of other material. And again, working with Dr. Hammer, who was amazing, and created this journal. And there have been several issues of it published since I left. And so that's my undergrad. And that's what several years later, after I was living out here in Oregon and had started doing, I had done different kinds of work, fundraising for environmental and public interest groups. And I missed school. I missed all the gray areas and that sort of that intellectual exploration of of lack of certainty, which wasn't really there when I was doing this sort of political fundraising that was sort of like, here's a problem, here's a solution, we're trying to enact the solution, but these people are trying to stop us. And it's not that it was wrong, it was just a narrative that I got tired of, and so I wanted to go back to school. And what I did was actually submitted a volunteer application at the Oregon Historical Society in their oral history department. And I went down to OHS, and met with the oral historian who was there at the time, Donna Sinclair, who's a fellow PSU grad. And Donna talked to me about what I wanted to do, let me transcribe interviews, introduced me to folks, and told me that public history is what I wanted to do. So she sent me to PSU. And I met with a professor, Bill Lang, who was still here at the time. And he talked to me about what I wanted to do and agreed that Donna was right and sent me off to get my take my GREs. And um, I ended up pushing my way into PSU mid-year and taking classes with Katie Barber and David Johnson and other folks. And because I had started here in the middle of the year, I applied for the Rose Tucker Fellowship at the Oregon Historical Society. And I got it. So I worked for two years at the Oregon Historical Quarterly while I was in graduate school here at PSU. So I've been working with the Oregon Historical Quarterly since 2003. And I was able to snag a job at OHS when I finished in 2005. They um, hired me on full time. And there were a number of different changes. And in 2007, I became the editor of the Oregon Historical Quarterly. So it's almost 10 years now that I've been editor of OHQ. And several years ago, um, Carrie Timchuk became the executive director of OHS. And we both agreed that we needed to have more programs, more things going on. So he agreed to expand my job duties to include programs and to hire on someone else to work with the quarterly, um, who's now Aaron Brazel, who works doing all of the production and a bunch of editing and lots of great work on OHQ. So that work with programming led me to really wanting to do 
the programming and the statewide outreach, but also really developing those relationships and partnerships. And I think that's where the community engagement part of it comes into play. It's my my whole story up till <laughs> right now. <laughs> but actually, I will say one other project that I've been engaged in since I graduated from OHQ that really was a, made a huge difference is that 2012 was the centennial of women gaining the right to vote in Oregon. And with fellow PSU grad Jan Dilge and with Kimberly Jensen, who's a professor at Western Oregon University, we co-founded the Oregon Women's History Consortium and uh, worked with several other folks to create a board for that. And we created the project Century of Action, Oregon Women Vote 1912 to 2012. And so that was a multi-year volunteer project that we all did to bring attention to the suffrage centennial in a variety of different ways. And I really, uh, really learned a lot from doing that project and especially from working with Jan and with Kim. The Rose Tucker Fellow now is Greta Smith, right? Yeah. And is she working on the quarterly? Yeah, she is. Yeah. So there's been, I've been able to work with Rose Tucker Fellows ever since 2005 when I graduated, continue to work with them. It's exciting that that's how you got there, and now you're able to help new professionals come along and help develop them that way as well. Okay, so you're the Director of Community Engagement at the Oregon Historical Society. What does community engagement mean to you, and what are some of the rewards and challenges of community engagement for cultural institutions such as OHS? Oh, that's such a great question. What does it mean to me, and what are some of the challenges and rewards? We did a lot of work, gosh, I think it was in 2015 now. The board and staff and volunteers at OHS took almost a full year to investigate and revise our mission and vision statement. And our vision statement says that that we believe we create a better tomorrow when we have an Oregon story that's meaningful to all Oregonians. And I think in Oregon, much like the United States as a whole, we really struggle with our narrative of how our state came to be what it is. You know, our founding as a state, (laughs) the way that we became the place that's come to be known as Oregon is really complicated. And it's full of a lot of violence and trauma. And it's also full of a lot of ingenuity and courage. And so I think when we talk about that Oregon story that's meaningful to all Oregonians, I think that is in many ways what community engagement means to me. If there's a way for Oregonians to have even some basic shared narrative about our past that really does resonate with all of us in a way that it feels true, that feels like successful community engagement. And achieving that isn't just the job of the Oregon Historical Society. That takes a lot of, of people's work in a lot of different places in a lot of different ways. But I think that is it's a charge that we have as an institution, I think. So yeah, so one of the ways that I, I talk about community engagement, I talk about our organization as a, as a, a tool that, you know, or even like a toolbox that there's a lot of ways that you can use us, that we want to be used. We want to be valuable for folks in the community. We have a lot of assets that we bring to our work. We have been around since 1898. We have a really tremendous collection of unique material that documents Oregon's past that that is publicly available and the 
people can come in and, and research in that material. We have museum exhibits and online resources. The Oregon Historical Quarterly has been published continuously since 1900. That's really an amazing legacy to the state of Oregon to every three months be publishing new information and new analyses on the history of Oregon. And we do events and public programs and partnerships and that kind of thing. So I think, you know, the community engagement is is all of that work of having relationships with other folks, finding out ways that people want to use us, making sure they know they can use us, learning about how we might need to change what we do so that we're more useful to the public. And then I think at the end of the day, being able to actually help in a meaningful way be part of creating a story of Oregon that really does resonate with everyone. And that means everyone who's been here, you know, whose people have been here since the beginning of time and folks who are brand new immigrants and refugees coming from, you know, elsewhere in the United States or or elsewhere in the world. You know, we want it to resonate. When you ask about some of the challenges, I think for an organization like the Oregon Historical Society that does have a certain size to it, it has a certain inertia to it. You know, it's a it's a benefit that we're huge and we've been around for a long time. Um, But that also makes it challenging um, because we are moving in a lot of different directions and we have a lot of different things going on. And again, when we were doing that mission and vision and we were talking about, well, who do we serve? It's very difficult to put any kind of boundaries on who we serve. The work that we do is on behalf of all Oregonians, whether they take advantage of it or not. You know, we're we're an organization that's for all of the state. But the people we serve go well beyond Oregon state lines. So we have researchers and filmmakers and novelists from all over the world who we serve and who we should be serving. And um, so I think it's, you know, it's, it's a challenge to figure out where are our priorities, what are the directions we go, what do we do? So which is awesome because everything is our charge. And super challenging because everything is our charge. So, Right, trying to find a way to involve all the communities within the community into the story, the grand story, or telling all the individual stories in their own way, giving their own time and space. What do you think the relationship in general, and maybe you can, and you can pull from your experience at the OHS, the relationship between cultural institutions such as history museums and their local communities, how do you think that's evolving and, and how would you like to see it change or keep on going the way it's going? I think that for OHS, one of the challenges that we have is that we're based in Portland, Oregon, but our local community is the entire state of Oregon, right? So, right, right. so because of proximity... In many ways, we may have better relationships with Oregonians who live in Portland than we do with Oregonians who live in Enterprise or in Burns or in Jacksonville. But it's our job to have relationships with all of those folks. So, you know, I can speak from my experience, and it's it's so much of the work of a cultural institution in, in building those relationships is being with people and listening to people. And so... The investments that you have to make as a cultural institution are with your staff, giving staff the time to go out and listen to people, giving staff the the time and the support to go take trips around whatever the geographic area is that's your designated geographic area. For me and my job, I, I need to keep up with the scholarship and I need to 
um, respond to requests from community members and go out and make relationships in the community. So we do that in a lot of different kinds of ways. And because I've been at OHS for over 10 years now, I feel like I can see how long this work takes. If you're really going to develop a relationship, you might begin with a project, but then it continues on. And I think the question is, how do you institutionalize those relationships? How do you make it systemic that you are working with and responding to various communities that you're trying to serve. And that's a that's a challenge. Can you give us some examples of maybe some um, projects, like short-term projects and then long-term projects that, you may, that you've been involved in? Just like give us an idea of what goes into those type, types of engagement projects. Yeah. So one that's on my mind right now has to do with Southern Oregon. So a few years ago, when I began doing the public outreach My boss supported me going out on some field trips around the state. And so I went down to Southern Oregon for a few days to meet with some people I knew and some people I didn't know. And um, just to go and be there, find out what people were working on, tell them about what we were working on. And I learned on that trip, this was several years ago, that there's a – the – People who do history work in what's called the state of Jefferson, Northern California and Southern Oregon, have been getting together every year for over four decades. And they share their archaeology and their anthropology and their history and their tribal stories, which is so cool. So because I had gone on that trip and got to meet those folks, then they invited me the next year to come down to the state of Jefferson meeting. So a friend, a coworker from OHS and I went down to Jacksonville. We went to the program. It was great. And then um, I schemed with some folks down there who I'd worked with at Southern Oregon University, Mark Taveskov and Chelsea Rose, to create a special issue of the Oregon Historical Quarterly about the state of Jefferson. And that's actually going to come out next month. In the short term, it was important for me to go out and show up in Southern Oregon. And on that trip, I met with Todd Keppel. And so he's in the Klamath County Museum. And we've since worked together, hosted programs. So they're sort of like Sometimes there's sort of short-term projects that take place because of longer relationships. But then I'll give you another one. There was a guy named Mike Agnew who got in touch with OHS last year, and he was creating a documentary of the history of hip-hop in Portland. And he wanted to work with OHS. So on Friday night, we're actually having the premiere of this documentary of Portland hip-hop at OHS. He just offered this to us. He had been doing research as a student here at PSU on hip-hop, realized there wasn't good documentation about that history at places like the Oregon Historical Society, believed the Oregon Historical Society is the place where that history should be able to be found. And so he brought this opportunity to us to premiere his film at the OHS to make sure we have copies of it. And so who knows where that relationship might lead. But for now, because he came to us and we said, yes, we're going to have a really fun time showcasing this documentary of a really important aspect of Portland and Pacific Northwest history. So those are a couple examples. Oh, those are awesome examples. Thank you. It really helps to put it into perspective how how something can start from seemingly a smaller project and turning to something much larger. And also, it gives a good understanding of just how complicated community engagement can get. And not only that, like how important it is to bring community history forward and engage with your own history and to engage with others' histories that maybe you don't find as relevant once you start to dig into it. Yes, it is 
actually relevant because we're all a part of this grander narrative. You've spoken about the Oregon Historical Quarterly. I have found this a great resource for me in my research. Uh, This is a great resource for Pacific Northwest history that I find very informative, accessible, and fun, enjoyable. It's pretty. (laughs) That's for sure. The publication is very well done and it's well written. And there are um, members from the community of different backgrounds that do um, contribute to the the OHQ. It's a well-established and respected journal that, as you mentioned earlier, has been continuously published since 1900. And on its website, uh, the OHQ is described as, quote, imagine a beautiful room with good lighting and comfortable chairs. People gather there to talk about the past. As they come and go, they bring in books and letters and photographs and memories, making them available for anyone else who visits. It is a place where people build on each other's knowledge and understanding to create something that is bigger than any one of them and that is of use to everyone. That room is the Oregon Historical Quarterly. Everyone is welcome in the room, end quote. I really like that, so I wanted to share that. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) It's a nice visual. What's your role as the editor of the OHQ, and what do you think and hope is the future of that publication? And how are you using, you've already mentioned one example, uh, but how are you using the OHQ to engage with the community? Oh, those are great questions. Um, I know I keep saying that, but they are. So as editor, it's, it's my job to work with the editorial advisory board. The editorial advisory board, I think, is an important group for any journal like OHQ, any scholarly journal, to help guide the direction of the journal, maintain its integrity, stand up for it if it's ever threatened, which it's not right now, which is great. And editor's job is to maintain the value of the journal. For OHQ, it's to maintain the value of that journal for researchers, for scholars, and for readers with general interest. It's always been a benefit of membership with the Oregon Historical Society. So OHQ is a peer-reviewed cited, footnoted, mm-hmm. uh, scholarly journal. And it's the idea is that it's it's available for a general audience. If you should not pick up OHQ and feel like, oh, this isn't for me. This is an insider's journal. Mm-hmm. Right. And so and there are great scholarly journals that are full of jargon and for insiders and folks who are speaking that language to each other. But that's not what OHQ is about. And yet at the same time, it's also a journal that advances scholarship about Oregon history. So it's my job as editor to make that happen. And um, I was really lucky to be uh, mentored and trained by Marianne Kediting Lang, who was the editor of OHQ before me and also director of the OHS Press at OHS and really taught me a lot about a lot of things, but including that the job of the editor in many ways is to really be the advocate for the reader. So you're thinking about readers in the decisions that you're making. So then on a, you know, a sort of day-to-day basis, what that means is I have the the real pleasure of working with authors, reading their manuscripts, giving them feedback, sending them out for peer review, gathering the peer review reports, sending them to authors with my own assessment about what I would like them to do with revision or whether we're able to accept the manuscript at all. And then that process goes 
on and on. We make authors work really hard. <laughs> we, they go through a lot of revisions. And uh, most of the time, at least one, every author goes through at least one revision. And some of them do more than that. And then we go through our copy editing. And I'm really deeply involved in that. And then work with Erin on crafting each issue and the table of contents. And she really does all that beautiful design and layout and makes it just look so fabulous and that's part of the accessibility too is that it should look inviting and um, so we work hard on that part too um, and then really planning out for the future we've been doing for the past several years um, we, we've created symposia so we'll gather scholars and community members to talk and present papers and share their um, knowledge about a particular subject or other and so that's also part of my job is continuing to um, conceive those and, and create those working with partners always and then we create sp special issues of the journal out of those so we did one on migration in Oregon history in the fall and we're right now in the midst of creating that special issue that'll be published later this year so that's that was your question about what's the, what's the role of the editor. There was another question, though, about... Um, yes. How are you using the OHQ to engage with the community? So, yes. Yeah, so one of the ways is with those um, symposia. Like, we did one on regulating birth in Oregon history, and we had folks who were midwives come and talk about, give their own history of how they had brought midwifery to back to Oregon in the latter 20th century, and we recorded that and published it. And we also worked with Shafia Monroe, who founded the International Center for Traditional Childbearing here in Portland, Oregon. And that's an organization that works with birth professionals of color, a lot of African-American women, but also women from other backgrounds. And so working to make sure that the skills and knowledge of traditional childbearing are kept and honored and shared here in Oregon and around the world. And so she gathered some folks and spoke at that program as well. And then recordings of that were edited and put into the special issue of the journal. So it goes sort of back, back and forth in that way. I think also... You know, we we publish work that that can successfully come through peer review and and meet our standards. So we don't have a particular ideological bent. That said, several years ago, the OHQ editorial board asked me to prioritize or think about or recruit work on communities who have not received lengthy and sustained attention from historians. So that's a huge charge. I mean, again, coming back to that, making sure the Oregon story is meaningful to all Oregonians. What does that mean? What does that look like? How do we then seek that out? So, you know, we have pieces that have been used a lot by community members. We did a piece um, actually by another PSU grad and a PSU professor, Ethan. He's in Black Studies here at PSU. And um, and his co-author, they wrote a piece on the history of segregation and desegregation in Portland public schools. Well, we published that piece with them six or seven years ago, and it's been tremendously valuable for parents and educators and people who are in the public school system here. We did a piece by Karen Gibson and Leanne Cerbolo, who are both here at PSU, looking at the relationship between Portland police and the Albina neighborhood from about the mid-60s into the mid-80s. And um, that piece has been tremendously valuable in understanding the historical context for some of the tension that we see not only in Portland, but in other parts of the country today. So I think 
the Oregon Historical Quarterly does not do political advocacy, right? But we do work that's relevant to the conversations people are having that are being political advocates. And to be fair, the you know, those two articles that I'm just talking about, they're addressing longstanding, complicated, significant challenges in our public life that have no easy solutions, that have no clear solutions. But if we can be providing historical context for the work that other people are doing to try and solve contemporary problems, I think that's a good place for us to be. And that's a good community engagement. And it might not be immediately obvious like those two articles are, but there are publications that go into OHQ that may be really relevant to contemporary discussions. And it's it's not as obvious of those, but still is out there. But then I think the other thing that has to do with community engagement, and this is part of being a big organization like we are, we have a relatively large platform. And so we're able to share Oregonians' stories with people that might not otherwise have access to it. Several years ago, we worked with a community member, Raymond Burrell III, who was documenting the history of Vancouver Avenue First Baptist Church, one of the largest and oldest historically black churches in Portland, Oregon. Again, he came to OHS, didn't see enough about that community in our research collections, and responded by facilitating the donation of a very large collection related to the history of Vancouver Avenue First Baptist Church that's now at OHS. And then we worked together and created an exhibit with the OHS exhibits team, obviously, that that looked at that collection. And when we had the opening for that exhibit, and folks from the Vancouver Avenue congregation came downtown, and they came to see that exhibit, there were folks who said to me, it's really important that this is here. This matters to us that our history is here at the Oregon Historical Society. And so while part of me thinks it's it's a little bit strange to say when it's at OHS, it's validating to communities, that's what communities have told us. And so I think the other way that we do community engagement is just by helping create a platform for folks to tell their stories about their history. So those are a few examples, I guess. <laughs> Yes, thank you for sharing that. Just a side note, I went to the birth symposium. Um, that was a couple years ago. The quarterly released a special issue over the summer. Uh, so I I enjoyed myself at this symposium. That's a big word. Yeah. It can be scary to some people. But all that means is a bunch of people get together and they talk about a specific subject. And that subject at, that, at the birth symposium was the subject of birth, and then it was taken in several different directions. Actually, I mentioned this in the last episode, the, that specific issue uh, from the summer. So, yeah, so I'm really looking forward to the migration um, symposium, uh, the special issue related to that. That will be coming up late, later this year. You know, you have a history of community involvement, too, that goes beyond your uh, professional career. Some of the more recent organizations include People's Food Co-op, Oregon Women's History Consortium, which you spoke about earlier, Multnomah County Cultural Coalition, Sisters and Sisters of the Road. What are some organizations that you're currently involved in, and just how do you think that your involvement helps with your current career goals? 
Yeah, I mean, definitely my work with Oregon Women's History Consortium overlapped a lot with my work at the Oregon Historical Society. And that was just, it was really challenging and a really valuable experience. I think working so closely with with Jan, with Kim, with Judy Margles, who's the executive director of Oregon Jewish Museum and Center for Holocaust Education, with Nova Newcomer, who is at the Center for Women's Leadership here at PSU and is now executive director of Friends of Baseball here in Portland, uh, with Nicole Nathan, who's an independent, oh, I guess not anymore. She's at the Lake Oswego Arts Council now, but she also is has, has a long history of doing work with museums and as a curator, um, and with Donna Maddox, who was a former elected official and is in the district attorney's office. So I got to work with all these different folks from different backgrounds. And it was very cool to see what we all brought to this big public history project. So I think I learned a lot in that project about um, grant writing and marketing and all kinds of things. So it's a very clear overlap, but because we were just sort of this small, scrappy volunteer organization, I think I I learned some things that I was able to bring back to OHS. Um, I'm currently the board president for Sisters of the Road, which is a 37-year-old organization on Northwest 6th and Davis. We operate a nonprofit cafe where folks can come in and get a healthful meal, and you can pay for it. You can also barter for your meal, so folks can work and in exchange for their food. Um, and folks can also pay with um, meal coupons. Anybody can buy Sisters of the Road meal coupons and give them out to folks um, downtown or anywhere who may need them, um, or with your uh, Oregon Trail card, your food stamps. Anyway, that Sisters of the Road is really based in philosophies of nonviolence, dining with dignity, gentle personalism. And so I think... It's a place where a lot of the work that I do there has to do with, yes, it's it's strategic planning and it's understanding financials and a lot of the kinds of things that that nonprofit governance requires, but it's also a way of being with each other that we practice at Sisters of the Road that has to do, again, with nonviolence and has to do with dignity. And we also are really focused on making sure that our work is work that advances racial justice and that opposes systemic oppressions. And so I think, you know, when you know history, you know sort of what those systems are. When when you know the history of Oregon, you're able to see those patterns of how oppressions and opportunities are created for some people and not for others. And so I think the work feeds each other. And I think the some of the ways at Sisters of the Road that that I'm able to be with people who are focused on, again, how we interact with each other. We have our meeting guidelines that we pay attention to at the beginning of every meeting. And I think that intentionality around listening, making sure that you are speaking when it's your turn and holding back so you can listen to other people, some of those habits hopefully bleed into my other work as a as a professional at the historical society my coworkers may or may not agree uh, but i'm trying um, and i think so i think just so much of the work that any of us do in cultural nonprofits whatever they are in in the nonprofit field so much of it really is just human beings trying their best to be honest with each other, trying their best to make good decisions, trying their best to empower each other in all the right ways to accomplish a mission. And so that runs across all of the volunteer commitments and the professional work that I do.
Well, thank you so much. This conversation has been wonderful. I really do appreciate all that you've shared with me. Do you have anything else that you'd like to share with us today? Just that I'm a big fan of this podcast. (laughs) I think I've listened to a few episodes of Beyond Footnotes. I think it's a really awesome idea to be able to engage with folks in this work and and present it in this podcast. I I listened to the fantastic interview with Melissa Lang, former Rose Tucker Fellow, and um, and, you know, it was great to hear some about her work and, and some of the other podcasts I've listened to have been great too. And I think it's a good reminder of the work of history, whether it's academic scholarship or public history or both of those things at the same time, which is often the case. It's never one person doing it on themselves. Yes, when you're writing, you have to sit down and force yourself to do it and you have to get your writing done. And there's a lot of work that you do as an individual. But the bulk of it that we create happens in collaboration and it happens because people are generous and thoughtful about their feedback with one another. And so I think Beyond Footnotes is an awesome way to showcase that field. So thank you for doing this. Oh, of course, we're going to be producing some amazing episodes uh, forthgoing. And it we will keep this podcast going for as long as we can, because it is a wonderful place, I, I believe, for scholars and professionals and students to come in and just not only show off their work, but tell their story too and add it to the greater narrative. So I am very impressed with your uh, your passion and I really appreciate the work that you do at the OHS and beyond. And I'm looking forward to future issues of the OHQ, future events, future whatever you get yourself involved in. It's all based in a great <laughs> PSU education. <laughs> Yay! (laughs) I agree. I agree. No, this is a wonderful institution, and I've had a great experience here myself. And being able to do something like this, I never thought possible. And so it's it's for me, it's been a wonderful ride, and I can't wait to see where it goes. That is all the time we have. Uh, unfortunately. It's been a pleasure having you on the show. As a final note, I want to stress that every person can contribute to the historical narrative. Local historians and historical organizations constantly seek and provide opportunities for community members to share their life experiences and input. Many of their services and events are free to the public. One idea is to talk to a graduate student and contribute to new scholarship. Plus, there are a ton of ways to get involved in community outreach. Beyond Footnotes is sponsored by the PSU Department of History and was recorded in the studios of KPSU. You can find information about this episode on our show page at kpsu.org and on SoundCloud. If you'd like to help the show out even more, there are a number of ways you can do that. Tell a friend, subscribe or rate us on iTunes, and follow the show on Twitter or Facebook. Signing off, I'm Lindsay Smith. Have a great week. Let me go back over all again That little scar is nothing in the arms Of all the things have yet to come I'd like to call it no big deal But we both know I'd be lying I can never come back if I don't go Whoa been a waste but it doesn't mean it wasn't nice sometimes you use a sweet lie to get by though 
it's done me well this place where there's a mountain there's a sky there's too much left between to ease my mind from where we got flowers by the fifth where we learned backhanded love where if you come off clever enough you don't have to cover anything up in this city's done me strange though i'm as courageous as i can and that courage sure is honest but can feel like such a fickle thing let me go back over or again that little scar is nothing in the arms of all the things have yet to come i'd like to call it no big deal but we both know i'd be lying i can never come back if i don't go Whoa. Well, explain to me this affinity for naming all those settlements, for things that crop up colorful in spite of all the clouds. Like you know it's there, but don't look down. There's a perfect place that's not quite now, and Jesus has a lot of love. But the good book might not let you out. Let me go back over or again. That little scar is nothing in the arms of all the things have yet to come. I'd like to call it no big deal, but we both know I'd be lying. I can never come back if I don't go. And that plan may have been a waste, but we'll make it up sometime. I'll find you when we've grown apart enough. Where there's a candle, there's a light. A shadow dances right behind, singing, "Come to me, son, let me test your luck." From where we got flowers by the fifth, where we learned backhanded love. Where if you come off clever enough. You don't have to cover anything up in this city's done me strange though I'm as courageous as I came and that courage sure is honest but can feel like such a fickle thing and explain to me this affinity for naming all those settlements for things that crop up colorful in spite of all the clouds from the roses city of my birth the golden man stands in a cherry town to a road stop named for mountains and women And their family ties and flowers by the fifth. In spite of all, in spite of all, in spite of all the clouds. Let me go back over or again. That little scar is nothing in the arms of all the things have yet to come. Like to call it no big deal, but we both know I'd be lying. I can never come back if I don't go.